Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the 43rd edition of Data Bytes, Getting Things Done with Data in Government. I'm Gavin Freegard, Associate at the Institute for Government, and it's wonderful to welcome so many of you this evening here at the IFG and online. Let's start in the usual way. Hands up if you've been to Data Bytes before. Welcome back. Hands up if this is your first Data Bytes. Welcome. Well, after 43 events and over four years, this is our first ever Monday Data Bytes. And it comes on a momentous day as our Queen addressed the nation on a matter of great public concern. Yes, the news has been dominated by the resignation of a high-profile public figure, as Lord's Whip Baroness Bloomfield last week became the fourth resignation from Rishi Sunak's government. Today actually marks the 60th anniversary of one of British politics' most famous resignations, John Profumo as Secretary of State for War. His Prime Minister, Harold Macmillan, suffered seven ministerial resignations in nearly seven years as Prime Minister. It took Boris Johnson only 14 months. But there's no need to feel resigned this evening, as we have four brilliant speakers to look forward to. Tonight's event is on the record, and we are being live-streamed, obviously. On social media, it's hashtag IFGDataBytes, and we are live-tweeting from at IFGEvents. And as ever, I'll be putting your questions to our speakers. If you're watching online, use the Slido page you're almost certainly already on. If you're not, go to bit.ly slash slidodb43, capital S, capital DB. If you're here at the IFG, you can also raise your hand. Why does the IFG organise Databytes? Well, we aim to bring together the various different data communities in and around government, show everyone what better data can achieve in practice, and put interesting data projects on the record so we can all learn from them. How does Databytes work? You're going to see four presentations about data this evening. Each presentation will last for eight minutes. Yes, just eight minutes. There are eight bits in a byte, hence eight minutes in a Databyte. The presenter will then face questions for eight minutes, yes, just eight minutes, and then we'll move on to the next presentation. So four presentations of eight minutes, each followed by questions for eight minutes. This is our 43rd Data Bytes. You can watch the previous 42 on the IFG website. It's been less than three weeks since we last met, and I always worry when we have less than a full month that nothing will have happened in British politics for me to talk about. I was particularly concerned this time round because of the 18 full days between the last data bites and this one, I've been out of the country on 15 of them. I was sunning myself on holiday for the first chunk. One friend suggested I was swapping data bites for midge bites. I'll spare you that particular data visualization. For the second, I was representing Connected by Data at the My Data conference in heavenly Helsinki. I was very tempted to spend eight minutes just on my holiday snaps. One place I visited was the island fortress Swarmenlina, bombarded by the British during the Crimean War when Finland was still part of the Russian Empire. A Finnish friend tells me we've never officially signed an armistice. And when, during their national service, they travelled to the UK on a discounted military ticket, they were told they'd have to change into civilian clothing before disembarking in London, lest it be considered a hostile interstate act. It says something about recent British politics that I'm not sure where war with Finland would rank in terms of madness. Which brings us to another quiet three weeks since we last met. More controversy, more scheming for power, more inhumanity and incompetence from not serious people. 
Yes, the TV show Succession came to an end. And who knew that one of the protagonists, Tom Wamsgans, had such an interest in information management? Forget data is the new oil. It would seem information is the new bottle of fine wine you smash someone's face with. Speaking of which, we unexpectedly welcomed Boris Johnson to the ranks of open government campaigners as he pledged to release unredacted messages to the COVID inquiry despite protestations from the Cabinet Office. Of course, this came shortly after the Cabinet Office handed material to the police about his possible lockdown breaches at the PM's Grace and Favour residence, a reminder of his chequered Partygate past. For several days, Suella Braverman drove the news agenda with reports that she'd asked for civil service help arranging a private driving awareness course rather than take the points on her licence. In the end, she took the three points, or if you prefer, one point for every 202,000 net migrants, or one point for every 55,420 people in the asylum backlog. Sinn Féin topped the local elections in Northern Ireland for the first time. Geraint Davis losing the Labour whip over sexual harassment allegations means this parliament is now ranked third of all since 1945 for MPs changing allegiance. And for those of you interested in data, the Commons Committee stage ended for the Data Protection and Digital Information Bill number two. Too fast, too furious may well have been the response of stakeholders as the 56 days they thought they had to submit evidence to the committee abruptly became 35. On the same theme, the Digital Markets Competition and Consumer Bill had its second reading, the third of three big digital bills alongside the Data Protection Bill and the Online Safety Bill. Now, the OSB has been with us since March 2022, or in fact, even longer. The draft bill published in May 2021 and the online harms white paper back in April 2019. That would make the bill as old as data bytes and on its fourth prime minister and sixth secretary of state. The digital world moves quickly, digital legislation less so. But my favourite data this month came from the Commons Library, showing attendance at Prime Minister's questions by each Prime Minister since 1979. The width shows the number of PMQs during their premiership. The height is the percentage they attended. Thatcher and Major take up so many of the PMQs since 1979 because they were twice a week before 1997. Imagine if they were twice a week now. It would break Twitter even more than it already is. Let's move through the Labour years. Once a week, Blair with 95% attendance, then Cameron, May and Johnson. Then we get to Liz Truss. <laughs> a 100% record, but only three PMQs. Rishi Sunak is on a post-1979 low of just 87% attendance, though given the current state of politics, perhaps we shouldn't blame him too much. One thing you won't want to stay away from is tonight's super Databytes lineup. We begin with Theresa Sota, former research assistant here at the IFG, and our first ever speaker from the Department for Science, Innovation and Technology on conducting a public dialogue on trust in digital identity services. We'll then have Liz Way of NHS England live from Leeds on their secure data environment. We'll be back in the room for Krista Mayer of University College London's Climate Action Unit, who will speak about turning climate change data into useful metrics. And finally, we'll be joined by Matt Lowe and Simran Singh of the Financial Conduct Authority's Innovation Lab on how their digital sandbox and tech sprint initiatives enable them to collaboratively explore and test out new technologies. 
In a change to our previously advertised programming, our next Data Bytes will be on Monday, the 10th of July. Yes, you wait four years for a Data Bytes on a Monday, and then you get two in a row. We'll then be taking a break for the summer, back on Wednesday, the 13th of September. This is an unusually unsponsored Data Bytes. We really do need sponsors to keep the series going, so please give generously. If you'd like to discuss partnering with us, then please get in touch with my colleague, Pratesh. And if you work in the public sector and might be interested in speaking or know someone who should, please get in touch with me. Now, that's more than enough from me, so we will now move on to our first speaker of the evening, and that is Teresa. Mine doesn't have quite as many jokes, unfortunately. So just to give you a little bit of policy context on what we're doing before I move on to talk about why we're doing a dialogue and how we're going about it. So here in the UK, um, as a government, we want to enable the widespread use of safe and trusted digital identities. So digital identities as technologies already exist. So really the problem here is how can we build trust in businesses, organizations, and individuals so they adopt them. And we care about this for two main reasons. First one is it could create massive efficiencies of close to a billion pounds a year for the UK economy to do this and to get this right. It can also make people's lives a lot better. It's, it's a theft these days to prove who we are, uh, collecting various kind of documents and paper documents and bringing um, paper statements and, and whatnot. And also we have close to 10 people, 10% of people in the UK who don't have what we call traditional identity documents. So they can also be helped by this. So we want to establish trust um, and we're doing this in three main ways. So we're creating a trust framework of rules for providers of digital identities um, in the UK so they can get certified against common standards and show that they're good providers and can be trusted. We're also establishing a governing body that will own those rules, keep, keep them up to date, and oversee the certification process. And we're delivering some legislation as part of the Data Protection and Digital Information Number 2 bill that will create a secure list of those trusted providers and, and underpin the whole system. So here's the general idea of what we were planning to do. But when we went to deliver each of those things, uh, there's still so many trade-offs and decisions as we moved from a draft to an alpha to a beta version of all this policy. And the question of how we could know what would really build trust in the system by citizens specifically was still in our minds. So we came up with a pretty easy, obvious solution, which is to ask. Um, and that's why we're running a public dialogue in partnership with ScienceWise. ScienceWise is a UKI program that co-funds and co-runs public dialogues on science and technology and all sorts of topics. So they really help policymakers get this right um, and do public dialogues as best as they can. Public dialogue is a kind of very qualitative long-term research project where you get a small but reflective sample of the UK population to discuss a topic with each other but also with experts, stakeholders and policymakers. In our case, we're involving a group of about 100 people um, that represent um, part of the UK in 20 hours of dialogue each. So really, by the end of it, they will be the, the world's leading experts on digital identity, uh, which is quite exciting. Here's how we decided that this was the right approach for us. Right? Like a very time-consuming, intense one uh, that we think is really important in this case. First is that we tried everything else. Uh, we went through all of the normal ways that government consults with people and stakeholders in general. 
we did a call for evidence, we did surveys, we did a consultation, we learned a lot. We learned a lot about what it was that everyone expected from us, but we didn't learn everything. Then we did focus groups, and again, we learned more, uh, but not quite everything. So we still had some trade-offs that we were making decisions on that we thought it was important to engage the public further on. And also, we still had enough to impact. So I think it's fair to say that, that in this spectrum of um, we have very little idea what we're doing to we've decided absolutely everything in policy, public dialogues are more common on the left side. So when people are publishing, for example, a government strategy, and it's very early on in a policy making. Public dialogues are not appropriate at all when you really have very ready-made policy interventions. Um, that would be just a kind of PR exercise, and, and we don't have any interest in that. But we're about right there in the middle. So we have some tangible policy deliverables that we know that we are going to deliver, but we don't know exactly how or the content of them. So we're still kind of public dialogue territory. Now onto a little bit about how we're doing it. I still have four minutes, so quite pleased with that. First thing is we have experts all around. Um, I don't think this is the kind of thing that civil servants should embark on and do by themselves. It's not about getting 100 people in a room and, and asking them how, how they're feeling about digital identities on the day. And the first group of experts that we have are ScienceWise partners. So one of the most wonderful things that comes with ScienceWise is a specialist that carries us kind of from the very inception idea of running a public dialogue all through to delivery. That's really important because it lets us have the very tricky conversations about the research piece very early on and let us write a really good um, ITT procurement requirement for the civil servants in the room um, who have the joy of doing those two. We also have specialist contractors. So we're working with Hopkins Van Mill who are complete experts on this and have delivered dialogues on very similar topics too. So they can tell us what worked and what didn't work in previous ones and really guide people through very complex conversations, right? Like teaching them everything that there is to know about digital identities very quickly so they can get discussing as quickly as possible. And finally, I have a great team of civil service staff who, as well as being very competent, uh, keep a very good sense of humor about the odd hours that need to be worked uh, when you're doing workshops in the evenings, weekends, and so on. Um, this is a lot more work than commissioning a normal research project. So, so again, for the civil servants in the room who might be interested, uh, do come and have a chat afterwards. It is time consuming, but very rewarding. The second key ingredient of the public dialogue is independent evaluation and oversight. So we have, as all science-wise dialogues, independent evaluators working with us throughout the process. So they do both formative and summative evaluations. This means that during, as we're going along, they tell us what's going well and what's not going so well, so we can change course, change course while we fly, which is very good. And also at the end, we'll have a very good record of what works in public dialogues and what doesn't. And, and that helps us build our collective knowledge of the method too. We also have an absolutely amazing oversight group, which is also true for all science-wise dialogues. So we have about uh, 15 experts from civil society, academia, industry, who come together and very generously share their expertise with us. So they were representing a various different views in the dialogue itself. So public dialogues aren't about not biasing participants, they're about biasing participants from all sides. Uh, so we really do wanna make sure that there are all sides uh, there as a part of this process. The group is shared by Professor Lizzie Koskem from, from Royal Holloway University, who has been kind of instrumental in getting us through this stage. And the final way we're doing this is trying to learn for other dialogues. Uh, 
A key part of this is that we do more public engagement when the time is right in government as we go along. We really want to learn as much about this as we possibly can. There are three things that we're particularly interested to learn from this dialogue about. So the first one is running a dialogue a bit later on in the policy cycle. We're by no means the latest dialogue to have ever been run in, in data, digital, or anything else. Uh, but we are kind of, we had a good idea of what we were doing before we started. So we think there are interesting lessons there. And especially when combined with the second element of it, which is that we're making this dialogue participant-led. We had participants review research questions pretty early on um, and really tell us what they wanted to talk about when it came to trust and digital identities. And finally, we're combining this with some sandbox style testing um, with industry. I'm not going to steal the FCA's thunder on what a sandbox is, so uh, that will be our final presentation for the evening. Our dialogue wraps up this Wednesday, and we're likely to have a report second half of this year, and we'll be very excited to share our results with everyone when the time comes for that too. So thank you. Thank you, Teresa. very much. Um, just a reminder to those of you online, please use the Slido to submit your questions, bit.ly slash Slido DB43 if you're not already there. But I will come to the room for questions first. Do wait for the microphone to come to you. Do tell us uh, who you are and where you're from if you can. Remember that we are on the record and remember that we will also be up against the clock. So please keep your questions nice and short. Who'd like to ask Teresa the first question? Uh, I'll come to you first and I'll come to you next. Thank you. Uh, Paul Atherton with my Museum of Homelessness hat on this evening. Um, what I'd be really interested in, in the group that you researched, were they included people who were digitally excluded? And if they were, what, what did you learn from that discussion? Yeah. So I won't be showing findings because I'm going to let the experts analyze all the data before I do. But I can give you my impressions from having come to the workshops. So we do have people, both people directly experiencing digital exclusion in the dialogue, and that works by having kind of very special support to them throughout. So they get offered tablets, laptops, whatnot, and, and also support during the workshop so that they can take part. Um, and we also have this through kind of represented as a topic through lived experience in interviews and videos. So we want to make sure that not only they are part of the dialogue, but that also as an issue that is being discussed by the wider group too. Um, in terms of findings, I, what I can say is that Having been in those workshops, this is one of the things that's absolutely top of mind of all of the participants. Right? Like it's one of the things that they care about most, um, both to do with, with other reasons for social exclusion and also the elderly. And, and I think a lot of people have experience um, in their families and in their lives about adapting to a kind of more digitized society. So this is one of the topics that people are keenest to talk about, I would say. Excellent. Thanks. Uh, we'll take the next question from... That you're going to show, share your results. Where will we find them? On gov.uk and our digital identity page. So that should be gov.uk slash digital identity. Um, and that will be second, second half of this year. So we will be analysing all the results. It's 20 hours of dialogue each for 100 people. So there are many, many hours of transcripts to go through uh, over the next couple of months. And then the report will be published. Brilliant. Um, I'm going to go online for the next one, but I've, I've got two questions after that. Um, this question is from Phil from Med Confidential. Good evening to you, Phil. Um, you mentioned the digital uh, sort of attributes and trust framework early on in your presentation. Phil asks, the Home Office require use of the framework but refuse to meet those obligations or be bound by it. Um, will DSIT fold under pressure, undermine trust in all your dialogue, or will the Home Office follow the law? 
Hi, Phil. Um, <laughs> I know Phil, uh, hence the, the hi to him specifically. Uh, I think you're talking about some technicalities to do with the requirements for the right to work, right to rent, and DBS pilot. For the other people in the room who are less keen watching digital identity, uh, we currently have certified providers working to offer digital right to work, right to rent, and DBS checks in the UK. Um, the Home Office in this context is a scheme owner, so this means that they have a slightly different role in the framework, and this is something that we are running very much as a pilot to learn lessons from, and I would anticipate that their role evolves. Um, in terms of us folding and, and uh, undermining the dialogue, I, I wouldn't comment on that because I don't think it's directly related, uh, but very much interested in using the findings from the dialogue to inform what it is that we should do further in terms of policy on about the digital identity home office pilot and, and beyond too. Thank you. Uh, we'll come down to the front first and I'll come to you next. Hi, I'm Jack. I'm coming from the, the private sector. Uh, my question, um, I thought it was really interesting. You want the very like, biased um, sort of conversation. I really like that. But how did you ensure it was like getting opinions from all different, you know, all different viewpoints? Because inherent biases of civil servants might accidentally creep in into finding people. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think they do, right? It's, it's fair to say, uh, whenever we're inviting, inviting a group, uh, an element of it is, is who do we know, who do we not know? Um, we did two different things in terms of selecting an, an oversight group. So one thing is that we, we prioritise having a mix of stakeholders we regularly engage with and those that we don't regularly engage with. So we had some people on this oversight group that are not the people who come to our regular sessions. We have monthly sessions, stakeholders as a whole. So we made sure that there are some who are not there. Um, also kind of, I think, cast a wider net in terms of everyone speaking and asking for recommendations. Definitely did drop Gavin email at one point about who we should uh, get involved there. We also had the su suppliers look for experts for the dialogue group separately. So um, we didn't know the suppliers beforehand. They have done things in this space. And, and I think it's fair to say there's also a really big time commitment to be asking people to, on a voluntary basis, come and, and inform a government project of this size. So there could be some self-selection bias on who it is who can or cannot take part. But um, we did what we could to have at least a variety of perspectives, perspectives that we thought were relevant in the sense of having a real mix of civil society of various different topics, academics, industry, and, and so on. Great. Uh, we'll take a question from you. Um, John Harrison from UCDX, which is a third sector organization. Can you just tell us a little bit about how the dialogue worked? Did you have one person, an in interviewer for 20 hours, or was it one person, an interviewer with a group of people, or how did that go? Yeah, of course, John. Um, so we split the whole group of 100 into two groups, and then each of those groups into much smaller groups. I'll, I'll get to that. So the sampling was done on a regional basis. So we had a group uh, for England and a group for, for Wales, Northern Ireland, and Scotland. And each of those groups got the same workshop format and the same speakers. So throughout, I think, six workshops, one group and five the other, um, they got given the same external experience, if you will, presented with the same materials. They then debated those materials in smaller groups of about five to seven people, so they could really have a safe space and kind of build a relationship with those other people in the dialogue um, and be able to express their views. So each individual was there for 20 hours, uh, but they, we did it twice. And then during each session, they were doing mm -hmm. it separately. Um, 
that might sound a bit confusing because it is. Uh, but, but essentially, each person ends up doing 20 hours of dialogue, but they're not doing it individually necessarily. We did have the option for people, especially people with, who didn't feel very confident doing this online, to take part in one-on-one -on -one interviews over the phone instead. Um, so they would have just done the whole process, which would have been exactly a dialogue, but, but a bit of a dialogue with the interviewer instead. Great. I've got three questions which we'll try and get through very quickly. First, from Miranda Sharp, one of my colleagues at the Open Data Institute. Good evening to you, Miranda. Um, she says, there's clearly much to learn from this exercise outside the personal data space. Have you thought about the interoperability of your outputs? Wow, that's a very good question. I'm not entirely sure what you mean in terms of the interoperability of the outputs themselves, but I think what we're trying to do is, so there are two reports coming out of this. There's the report on the actual dialogue, and then there's the report on the evaluation. The report on the evaluation, I would say, will be really heavy on the what works on dialogue as a method, whereas the dialogue one might say less about that because it's more targeted at a kind of digital identity audience. Um, and I would say we're also very keen on other creative ideas to get the word out and that's very much the principle of science-wise, uh, which is to learn about dialogues themselves. So do get in touch with Miranda if you have any good ideas about what else I could do. Excellent. I'll take a question from uh, you in a second. When we've got the microphone, very quickly, from Emily Bailey-Page from the House of Lords Committee Office. I'm interested in the process you outlined whereby participants have a role in shaping questions before the session. Could you share a little bit, bit more about how this works and how you ensure your core research questions still get answered? Yes, very good question and difficult to do. Um, so we did first a webinar where, where participants understood a topic enough and kind of got a sense of what they were doing. And then the first workshop is when they discuss the research questions. Um, we were clear from the outset that we were going to do a balance of the things that we absolutely needed to have answered. So, for example, questions related to user control of data were really important ones to us. That, that there was no question that we, they wouldn't be discussed. But we left about a kind of 50-50 split. Um, we were lucky, I think, that we had a we guessed pretty well beforehand what it was that people wanted to talk about based on all the previous research that we had done. Um, so there weren't too many changes, but there was definitely a big shift in kind of, we got a much bigger picture research question from the participants that, that helped us kind of frame the whole thing around what, what is the role of government as, as oversight, and we slotted the smaller ones in. Fantastic, and I'm gonna take a very quick question, a very quick answer. Hi, Andrew Churchill, uh, author of the British Standard in Digital Identification and Strong Customer Authentication. Uh, for fans of Private Eye, uh, this is the 94th dialogue or consultation we've had on um, digital ID um, in, since 2010. Any chance we're actually going to get a security review to go with them, uh, perhaps working with uh, Matt on the FCA sandbox, because we haven't had any security testing of any of the systems being put forward? Of a security testing, sorry, I think the mic was of the provider specifically. Of the trustworthy work and of the, uh, of the digital identity program. Yes, both doing sandboxes and doing certification, but kind of slightly separate topic from, from the dialogue, so very happy to pick it up afterwards. Well, possibly holding the record for the most number of questions answered during an eight minutes. Uh, thank you very much, Teresa. Thank you. <laughs> For our second speaker, we are going to Leeds, uh, where we'll hear from Liz. Liz, can you hear us? I can hear you, yes. Can you hear me? Uh, we can indeed, and we can see your slides on screen. Ah. So, uh, ready when you are. Wonderful. So, yes, hello, everybody. I am Liz Way. I'm working with NHS England, and I'm here to talk to you about our secure data environment. Um, 
So, what is the NHS England Secure Data Environment? So, it's a um, a data a data storage and access platform. Essentially, um, approved researchers are accessing the data and analysing the data within this environment. So uh, the data does not leave NHS England. People come to the data rather than us sending the data out. Um, one of the key things to mention is um, whenever you sort of talk about this at a high level, people have this idea of sort of an environment and you log in and all, all our data is there for you to view. Um, unfortunately, for people who want to access data, that, that isn't the case. Um, the access to data is very much controlled. Um, so our data access request service, uh, DARS, uh, that's the engagement point for users. Um, you have to have an application um, and that's reviewed against, obviously, strict government standards. If you have a request for data approved, you get a data sharing agreement. And this is the way the secure data environment is the way that you will access that data. So um, currently we send out lots of extracts. So uh, research organisations request data for a specific research project. Um, we have that data. We um, sort of uh, get that data ready and, and out it goes. Uh, what we're trying to stop with our secure data environment is, is that last bit. So uh, instead of you getting a, a CSV file with a load of data in it, you come into our environment and you, you use the data within our environment um, to do your research and development. Um, so what are the benefits to this? Why, why are we doing this? Um, so for patients, we can be a lot clearer on what the data is used for and who has access to it. Once we send that data out, really it's out of the control of, of NHS England. Um, it's it's in the um, control of whoever we've given that to. Um, obviously, they'd have rules of not sharing that, but, but we have no control. So we can be a lot clearer on who has access to data, uh, what data is performed on it. We have a tool in the environment that really logs everything that's happening there. So if needed, we could be really clear on queries that run against that data, what what, who has actually accessed that data, uh, what they've used it for. Um, for industry, we're able to give access to larger amounts of data. So we had a customer recently who was um, doing a research piece on um, sort of the effects of some sort of post-COVID-19 uh, um, vaccines sort of after everyone had the booster they wanted access to 25 percent of our population it's something that we wouldn't have been able to provide before we couldn't have sent that amount of data out to a to a customer um, or a research organization but by letting them come into the environment to to do that research we were able to provide that because we can have a lot more tighter controls over what they're using it for um the NHS, um, the benefits here are really that we're, we're able to meet our obligations around keeping data safe whilst also, you know, enabling this groundbreaking research that will essentially help outcomes and help patients. Um, and then there's benefits to the economy. We can increase sort of um, research and life sciences. So um, there's a few policy drivers, um, better, broader, safer use of uh, health data for research, otherwise known as the Goldacre Report, um, that made a compelling case for how data can drive innovation. And that review recommends um, using these data access platforms, trusted research environments, secure data environments um, to, to work um, in. We also have the Data Saves Lives strategy, um, which outlines the intention to move away from processing, um, as I mentioned. Um, 
And that's bolstered by several key investments. So the NHS England SDE, which I'm talking about now, um, and there's also a number of um, NHS subnational secure data environments um, that are being developed as well at a more uh, yeah, subnational level. And then the Data for Research and Development Programme, um, so they, they're committing to sort of this ecosystem of NHS-owned and managed infrastructure, really to allow researchers access to this data. I mean, I think everyone's, um, you know, there's lots of reports out there, lots of drivers out there that this data is so valuable. Uh, we can do some brilliant research with it if we can just enable users to access it sort of safely and securely. So... A little closer look at the environment. So this is my sort of day job. And a lot of people, when you talk about this, this is the biggest question I get from quite a lot of uh, policymakers. I think I went had to go to the sort of Undersecretary of State for Health. You know, they sort of say, what is it? When you talk about an environment, what is it? And sometimes for me now, it can feel quite underwhelming when I go and present it because it's basically a virtual desktop. It looks very similar. That is a screenshot of the secure data environment. I think people are often surprised. It's it's very you know user friendly. It's very what we're what people are used to working on. So this virtual desktop, um, you'd get a login to this once if you're on a uh, an approved data sharing agreement, you get access to this. And in there, there's a, a suite of of, of tools. Um, we have Databricks as our main um, analytical tool there that supports Python, R, SQL languages. Uh, we have open source tools such as our Studio. Uh, we're just putting the extensions in at the moment for VS Code and PyCharm. We have GitLab to support that code management and version control. Um, collaboration spaces to work with your colleagues on the same data sharing agreement. Um, the ability to import reference data. So a lot of people, they have access to our data, but they want some code lists, some lookup tables to use. They can get that into the environment. And then the key one here is the safe data route. So all the research is done within the environment using those tools. And then when researchers, academics have got the results they want to take out, they go through our safe data route process. So there's a little, it's too small for you to probably see, there's a little drive there called uh, data out storage you pop your results in there and it goes through our safe data out process to check that that is safe to take it out um, it has to follow a number of safe data out rules um, someone checks that they um, uh, follow those rules and then they get put into a location where you can take it outside of this environment so this environment has no open internet so it's very secure once you're in um, you can't sort of open the internet um, you can only use the tools that are in here Thought I'd mention some of the key challenges. So for me as a product manager, the, one of the, the key challenges I'm finding at the moment is this balance between a flexible environment for users to work with and also ensuring the platform maintains the highest level of security. So a really basic example of this is uh, a lot of security people uh, working on SDE had told me that the session timeout, uh, an idle session needed to be the lowest possible, needed to be 30 minutes. So if a user wasn't using the session within 30 minutes, it, it should time it out. And when we went live and, and users were on it, you know, they were saying to me, well, it takes about 10 minutes to get the session set up. You know, the, your average working day, you get set up, you're in the environment, you start your work, you go to a half hour meeting, as we all do during the day, I go and make a cup of tea, I come back and you've 
logged me out and I've got to start all over again. So the hour I had to do my research is now, you know, 50 minutes because I've spent another 10 minutes getting logged on again. And so we had to work with that balance of, well, yes, it's very secure because idle time is 30 minutes, but that's not very usable. Um, I mentioned about collaboration areas. Um, we have a very, it's, we call it a walled garden. So the wall is your DSA, your data sharing agreement. So if you're on the same data sharing agreement as someone, you can go in, you see exactly the same things, you can collaborate. If you're on different data sharing agreements, you see nothing from that other data sharing agreement, that other environment. So one of the things that the Goldacre review was very keen on was being transparent, code sharing, re reusable um, uh, analyst uh, code. We've got uh, customers there that, you know, they'll speak to each other in research forums and say, well, I, I wrote a brilliant bit of code. Um, I'll share that with you. And we can't allow, like, how do we do that safely? So the, the sort of the code sharing tools such as Git, they're very much as a, an open to everyone. So how do we keep those security boundaries um in place whilst also enabling people to use it. Um, and similar to data out, we have a lot of customers who want faster data out. They want to get data out to feed dashboards and we want to allow that, but we have to follow these strict rules as well. So it's a real challenge we've got at the moment. You know, people um, that had extracts of data previously could could use whatever they wanted. They could use the tools they wanted. They have a lot. They had the, they had a lot more um, control themselves. So it's trying to make this environment as flexible as possible, as usable as possible for researchers to come in and be able to do that work, whilst also making sure that we are a, a secure data environment. And the second big challenge we've got really is the scalability of data provisioning. So. Our data is manually provisioned for each customer as it stands. There's many reasons for that, of which I'm no expert on, and there'll be more expert people in England that can talk about that. Um, but but the application is very um, very fluid and it, it's very colloquial, so that there's no set standards of, of this is the data I want and these are the fields I want. There's a lot of work to do to try and make that a bit more automated um, to talk about, you know, can I have this data, these fields, there you go, it's available. Uh, I lost track of time, so sorry. I've only got one more slide. I don't know if I'm... So I thought I'd just let you know where we were. So, um, yeah, the platform's currently in beta phase. Um, we have seven customers, so uh, on seven different data sharing agreements currently using the environment. So it is fairly small at the moment. Um, any new DARS applications now coming into the secure data... Uh, sorry, any new uh, DARS applications uh, coming into NHS England are considered to, for use of the secure data environment as opposed to extracts. Um, and then me and my day job, I'm really just trying to improve and enhance these environment features to make it as usable um, as possible for these people. So that's my presentation. Oh. I will stop sharing and I think... I can then come on camera and you can see the face behind the voice. Fantastic. Thank you very much indeed, Liz. And we can indeed see you on screen. Um, a reminder to everyone online, please use Slido to put your questions to Liz. It's bit.ly slash Slido DB43. Um, I'm going to come into the room for the first one. And we've got a hand up there. Thank you. Great presentation, James, from the Evidence Quarter. Um, how do you see a potential bridge happening between the NHS SDE and something like the ONS 
SRS, Secure Research Service, for the matching of health records that is currently not supported by the Digital Economy Act. Um, how do you see that coming together? Because it seems like the natural step to bridge those types of data, data sets. And of course, then that gets bigger when you can. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know that um, I have an answer particularly. So I know that we've worked with um, the ONS um, similar environment um, and worked with them on that. I know we've been looking more at um, sort of how we can accredit researchers once they're in access in one um, to be able to access sort of the variety of environments around. Um, but um, it's not something I've really been involved with, unfortunately, which is sort of um, get, getting the data together. I, I agree that that's something that seems like a natural thing we should we should look at. Thanks, Liz. Um, I'm going to go online for the next question. Uh, we had Phil, Phil from MedConfidential. We've now got Sam from MedConfidential. Evening to you, Sam. Um, he says the SDE term was created to cover both research and the federated data platform, but the current consultation text um, is clear that the Palantir federated data platform, uh, maybe getting ahead of the procurement process there, will not be bound by the SDE rules. Why is that? Um, again, I'm afraid I, I couldn't comment on that. So this is very separate to the FDP, um, this secure data environment and the FDP. Um, there's lots of, um, I know there's lots of sort of uh, communications and, and things being written to try and explain the difference between those two. Um, but unfortunately, I, I couldn't comment on them. Thanks. Uh, let's come back into the room for the next question. Um, I'll take you first and I'll come to you next. Uh, John Harrison from UCDX. UCDX stands for User Control of Data. An X for the fun of it. Um, Liz, thank you for the presentation. Can you just, is, is the data available within the SDE essentially somebody's full medical records? The data that's available in the environment is any data that NHS England holds. So we have, um, we don't have, um, uh, highly publicised. We don't have sort of the the uh, GP data um, available in there. Um, I think anything we have available is listed on our NHS England Data Access Request Service public pages. Uh, that would detail at a high level. So we have you know maternity services data set, um, mental health data set. It's all pseudonymised. So as I said, it's um, not the raw data that's in there. The data that's collected via NHS England is then created into a, a pseudonymised data asset, uh, which is then available. And actually, um, in the SDE, it's a unique data asset that's created for each individual customer. So when we have um, health data research in there, there'll be a specific asset as um, detailed in their data sharing agreement. So um, any data that they have uh, got approval for in their data sharing agreement, there'll be a specific asset created for them. So I said it's quite manual, and that's the biggest challenge we've got. How do we scale that up? because we've got lots of applications, people want to see lots of data, and each time we have to manually um, create that. So, yeah, it's, it's also dominant, and it's, it's very much individual and unique. Thanks, Liz. Um, yeah. Hi, Liz. <clears throat> Sorry. Uh, yeah, it's Matt here from the FCA. Um, I've got a question around about the data sharing agreements, because obviously if you want to scale, you need to try and turn them around pretty quick. Do you have, like, some sort of boilerplate in place so that you can actually work with the people who want to access the data so that you have like I know from experience when you're going through data governance there's there's a lot of issues you need to work through do you have to do that individually for each of the researchers that get access to the data or can you have something that's more boilerplate 
At the moment, it's very individual. I said that this is one of our key challenges that even though we can get this um, environment spun up pretty quickly, it's the it's the lead up time to that. So it's um, one, of, one of the big challenges we have, obviously, is around the data, the data we hold, but being really clear on that and then being able to articulate that in a way that researchers can say okay well to do my research I'll need this field that field this subset of data and that's something that we don't have so it's very much a back and forth with each customer as we talk as we talk through them of what 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 project you're trying to do what data do you need what's available what what will give you that um so yeah it's it's there's a lot of work going on to try and improve that and automate it and work out how we do it um at the moment it is very manual Great. Um, I'm going to go online for the next question. Uh, this is from Anonymous. Good evening to you, Anonymous. There are data access request applications from arm's length bodies and local government. Do you see analysts using the SDE for ongoing operational work, for example, public health purposes, or do you see it as being an environment purely for research projects with defined periods? Yeah, at the moment, the platform is very much for sort of research projects for with defined periods. And I think that's the difference, one of the things that the, the difference between potentially this FDP and, and secure data environment will be. I'm conscious that all the lights have gone off in the office. There you go. You'll see me again now. Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, I think the, the, the platform... Um, has got some potential benefits to, to to grow legs a little bit. So there's there's definitely a service around the secure data environment around researchers. I know some of our internal NHS England analysts are looking at it and saying, hang on, these tools are better than we've got. Can we use it for our actual um, research and analysis as well? Um, so yeah, the, the platform could, could move on, but at the moment, uh, no plans. Thanks. Uh, I think we had a question down here at the front and I'll come to you next. Hi, Liz, thank you. Um, it's Jack here. Um, so you said it was quite manual, the process of like um, getting users on. So sort of building on to Matt's question, maybe. So let's say you've got a customer who's had a, um, got a data sharing agreement, um, and then there's someone who works at one of these organizations, and that like an employee, and they move role or they move away or something. How do you ensure only the correct people have access to the platform? And, and yeah, that's a question. Yeah, it's a good question. It's one of the things. So as part of our data sharing agreement, the onus is very much on the customer. So um, it's their responsibility. So we are at the moment relying on um, the customer telling us. So if the customer doesn't tell us, I suppose there is a risk there. And I know it's got it's something that got picked up in uh, one of our GDS assessments recently is, um, you know, better sort of authentication. Now, there's, there's rules around that, you know, we, we can't take too much responsibility and where does that legal responsibility lie um, at the moment um, and excuse my terminology because I always get it confused but it's, it's around the data controller um, and the data consumer roles so it's very much the the responsibilities on um, the the, the organisation with the data sharing agreement to make sure that they manage who has access to the data as per that data sharing agreement not on us as NHS England to say oh that person left the organisation it's up to them to tell us. Thanks. Uh, there's a question at the back. Hi, thank you so much for the presentation. Um, Helena Fox from Boston Consulting Group. So I'd be really interested to hear the sort of planned data flows and interoperability between the subnational, national, and then the FT, FDP, and how that sort of is going to work. 
as would I. Um, and I don't think we have a um, I don't think we have a defined um, yet. So the subnationals are very much in their infancy. You know, um, we're working closely with them to sort of work out what bits they can use from the national, how we can make this easy. Uh, yeah, how the data flows. Um, and again, with FTP, I mean, that's still um, sort of in design and, and development. So um, it's not something we have. I think once we know that, that'll, that'll be stuff that will that'll come out. But it, it's not there yet. Great. Thank you, Liz. Well, we've only got 20 seconds left, so uh, I think we may bring it to a close there. But thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, and apologies to Jeremy online and anyone in the room whose questions we didn't get to there. Uh, we're now going to move to our third speaker, and that's Chris. Okay. So I'm going to be talking about the process that we undertook to turn data into metrics that are easier to understand for people than some of the things that are out there. So I won't be talking so much about the metrics themselves. I will mostly be talking about the design process that led us to what you see there. Um, and it's a process that we call a distributed core design process. And why we call it that way will hopefully become clear uh, during the minutes that I have. Um, <clears throat> so. For us, the story begins in um, July 2021 when we found ourselves facilitating a workshop for WWF and Quadrata Climate Foundation who were interested in learning lessons of uh, what we could get out of how COVID risk was communicated using metrics like the R number. And they brought together a group of people from um, science, from civil servants, uh, journalists, data experts, psychologists, and so on, and uh, they wanted to know what is it in the opinion of those people, what are the things that made the R number such a popular and effective way and useful way to talk about COVID at the time. And so we ended up running that workshop and analyzing the information that came out of it. Um, and we thought that was sort of a service we did to those two organizations. Um, but it turns out that we ended up doing a lot more on this. So some of the things that we found when we were digging into the opinion of those experts from different domains is um, certain features that make a metric like the R number particularly useful to use it for communication purposes or to communicate risk. And I just pulled out a few here from the 25 or 30 that we pulled out of those um, expert opinions, but the first one is that like the R number was very closely linked to the dynamics of the system that you wanted to communicate about. It was very much linked to the physics of the way that that uh, disease was spreading through society. The second one was that it was a small number, and that was really important because brains can't parse big numbers. So this was a small number that people could easily remember and could easily parse. That's a little bit counterintuitive because sometimes people think that if you want to really scare people, you need to use really big numbers. But actually, brains can't really deal well with big numbers. Um, third important point is had a very clear non-arbitrary threshold between good and bad. No one needed to decide on what that threshold was. The system told you that that one was a threshold between good and bad. And that's different from, exam for, for example, uh, the one and a half or the two degrees in the Paris Agreement. Those are politically agreed thresholds. They are not part of the system. And the final thing that the R number did really well was that it was showing what the situation was here and now at that particular moment that the metrics were being used. 
We also found a couple of other things. Oops, daisies. I pressed the wrong button there. Um, a couple of other things that, that people said was important for how this R number became useful. And it was that it wasn't numbers don't have meaning in and of themselves. The R number acquired the meaning over time because it was repeated over and over again by communicators, because it was explained very well in story form and in graphical form, and because it could be linked very well to people's experiences. You could help them understand what was happening in their own lives when they went to a party and five people came home ill afterwards. So we asked ourselves the question following on from that analysis, what if we were to apply these ideas to climate change and to developing metrics for climate change? Not starting from data availability, but starting from communication needs. And the interesting thing is that most climate metrics, most climate data out there actually have been developed from starting from data availability. And here we decided to turn that on its head and say like, what if we started with the needs of the communication or the way that you would want to communicate about climate change and then work your way back to what data you have available to tell those stories. So we picked three candidate metrics um, and they tick several boxes of that usefulness of the R number. Important is that together they tell a story that links the physical causes of climate change all the way to people's own experiences. We um, started an iterative design process going through these multiple phases. Uh, what we did in scoping is that we brought together scientists, data expert journalists, and we asked them questions about like, how do you trade off, how do you choose scientific robustness um, versus communication usefulness, for example. And we also wanted to ask like, what data is available to, to talk about this particular concept that people want to talk about. We then looked for a design partner. We weren't initially interested in working with a design studio. We wanted someone who sat a little bit more central in the design world, who could make that bridge for, from us to the, the design organizations. And we found Data for Change as a very useful partner to do that. We started to work with them developing design briefs, which forced us to really simplify the way that we were telling the story about these different metrics. So um, we work a lot on science communication. We think we're already telling fairly simple stories about very complex science. Working with them was really an eye-opener in how much you can simplify even more and still get the main points across. We then ran a design sprint with multiple teams of visualization experts and designers um, over three days. Um, they did this. Uh, they started with working out concept and ideas and scribbling things on pieces of paper. And over the course of three days, started to turn that into ideas for representation and even a comms idea, a communication campaign for how you would explain one of these metrics in tube posters. Um, we took everything that was produced in those design sprints and we then did some extensive testing with that. So we uh, uh, put it in front of about 60 people, did a lot of storytelling around the metrics, discovered what works and what didn't work in terms of how much you need to explain and pulled all of that knowledge together into a second design route that became then the prototype development for the dashboards that we wanted to finish our work on. 
And for this process, we did team up with a particular design studio because this was the moment where you want to start working together with a smaller team that can drive it towards the final product. So we ended up with this, and I've got a minute so I can tell you a little bit of what you see on here. So we've got three metrics on here, and the story that links them together is that because of human activities, we release carbon emissions into the air. That is trapping extra energy into the Earth system because the energy that arrives from the sun has it now harder to escape back into space. That is causing an imbalance in the Earth's energy system. And so we're trapping a certain amount of energy constantly at every minute into the Earth system. That is causing temperatures to go up and those temperatures are causing unusual weather events to become more and more likely. Now, some of these things are still numbers on a page that are staring at you, and you might go like, what do they mean? And this is where that additional storytelling becomes really important. And one of the things that we tested is how do you explain that Earth's energy imbalance? Because it's a metric that has been around for a long time, but no one's actually really been able to explain it very meaningfully. Because here you see a really small number, because that is for every square meter on the, on the planet. But if you look at what happens over the entire planet, it becomes such a gigantic number that it doesn't have any meaning anymore for people. So the thing that we, one of the stories that we tested was to turn this into the number of ovens that each of us would be having running continuously with doors open and all of that heat escaping into the Earth system. It's 33 ovens. We would be running continuously all of the time. It's roughly double now of what was in 2010. So it really shows that the rate of change of how we're tampering with the planet is rapidly increasing at the moment. Okay, so um, you can go and read more on our prototype uh, website, climate-org. There's a little bit of that explanation there. If you want to hear us talk specifically about the metrics and less about the design process, then we're running an event at London Climate Action Week by the end of the month. That's it. Thank you very much, Chris. <laughs> a reminder, if you're online, Slido, bit.ly slash slidodb43. You should be reciting it in your sleep by now. I know I will be. Uh, let's stick in the room for the first question. Um, thank you. They're lovely metrics, um, but when I think about metrics, I want to twiddle with them. I want to be able to do something that in causes the metric to change. And with the R numbers, they changed quite frequently. These ones, will they change frequently or if at all? Uh, they will change a lot slower, of course, but they will be responsive to the policy actions that we are taking. If we were to um, get to net zero, then you would expect the Earth's energy imbalance to go to zero. You would expect the speed of temperature change to go to zero. And you would expect unusual weather to stabilize around one. So over time, they should be changing. Yes. You could do that, yeah. Um, we are at the stage of the project where um, our funding for doing this part is running out. So it, it's contingent on finding more funding to develop that work, yeah. Great, thank you.
Thank you. Uh, who would like to go next? Yes. Uh, wait for the mic. Yeah, just a question on uh, whether you've been able to attribute those changes to specific industries um, to actually communicate what change people can make to lower the consequences. So that would be additional work that you need to do on sort of looking at carbon budgets and who is emitting what, and then you could start apportioning that. Uh, the energy imbalance, you could apportion that speed of temperature change as well. Uh, again, that would be an additional piece of work that we haven't been able to tackle. Thanks. I'm going to go online for the next one. Jeremy uh, says, the metrics were interesting, but I don't think there was any indication of how bad a metric was. For example, 1.5 W per, per M squared. How bad is that? Yeah, so that's a really good question. And we've purposely left that to the way that you use these metrics then to communicate about this and not put that in the design itself. And the reason is that some of these metrics are sometimes going to say something about completely innocuous events that are affected by climate change. So if we have an especially warm day in March or April where people go on the beach, to go, can go to the beach, that is now affected by climate change, it's that unusual metric could tell you something about how unusual is this day or this, this particular period of time. Um, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, that is just a change in our, in our life circumstances. So one of the things that we work on in the Climate Action Unit a lot is redefining the way that we're thinking about how we need to communicate about climate change. And just talking about how bad things are isn't necessarily the right thing to do because fear isn't a uniform driver of action. Fear leads to denial and to indifference as well to action in some people. So it's more about creating metrics that then journalists and storytellers and communicators can use to help people make sense of what is happening rather than just showing how bad the situation is. Thanks. Uh, you've touched on this already, but Tom King, evening to you, Tom, asks, what is unusualness? Yeah, so thank you. That's the unusual weather index. So that's a, a metric that tells us something about how uh, unusual the weather now is in comparison to uh, if we were living in a world that didn't have climate change. And what we saw uh, as the number there is three and a half times. And what it means is that we now at this moment in time have about three and a half times as many temperature records being broken as if climate change wasn't happening. Now, that is only one way of communicating that unusualness. There are other ways that you could communicate unusualness, but that's the metric that we had available as part of the project that we were running. Thanks. Uh, let's come back to the room for the next question. Uh, I've got a question down here, and I'll come to you next. Uh, thank you. I thought it was really interesting. Um, so my question is, you, you kind of touched on this, as your funding's running out and stuff. Obviously, it's really good. Journalists pick this up and they say, oh, you know, we, this 40-degree record day, you know, this is really unusual. Did you know the unusualness is 3.5? Um, how are you going to get journalists and policymakers and government to pick this up? Good question. So we are running what we call a socialization process. This is the last part of the process. And this is actually the first socialization event that we are doing, where we are talking about the metrics and about how you could use them in a different form of communication. And then we're going to be running a series of workshops where we will be working with data visualization experts, with journalists, with policymakers to work through those questions. But of course, we're only going to get a certain amount of the way. We know that this work needs continuous 
continuation. And there is um, there are some challenges around data availability, like how quickly you can update those metrics, for example, that stand in the way of those metrics becoming useful and usable for journalists. But we feel that we've taken a first structured step in closing that gap between the enormous amounts of data that exist on the internet from climate scientists, but are completely unusable by journalists. Like, um, for some of these metrics, I am a scientist myself, I know how to deal with data, but the amount of work to get data from a NASA website to turn it into these metrics, it's enormous. So I would never expect a journalist to do that of their own um, uh, sort of, yeah, uh, time that they have available for this. Great, thank you. Uh, right at the back. Thanks, uh, Matt Kolog, uh, freelance data scientist. Um, I thought the presentation was really interesting. I think it's, it's, it's really sort of interesting the process you've taken and used sort of the R number and COVID, et cetera, to, to inform the thinking. I assume the metrics you've shown us are sort of the global level, sort of that whole earth. But I was wondering to what extent you can disaggregate those to um, different territories or different communities. Obviously, we've got a thing where those of us in the West are responsible for a lot of that temperature energy sort of imbalance, but actually the unusualness is often happening much more intensively. Not to say it's not happening here, but it's happening much more intensively in, in um, other parts of the world. Yes, very good question. And luckily for the second and the third metric, you can disaggregate it to a regional level. Uh, so large regions, geographical regions or, or large countries, not smaller countries or city level, that wouldn't make much sense. There would be too much natural variability in the, in the data. But we do have on the website, you will see we've chosen six prototype regions to, put, to, to show side by side there, uh, Europe, US, Russia, uh, East Asia, and so on. Um, and yes, and in, in due time, you would be expecting to be able to do that for all of the geographical regions that have large enough scale. Final quick question. Down at the front. Uh, thanks for that. It's really interesting. Um, I've got a question around about the design and, and when you're going through those workshops, what were the personas that you identified to help commu communicate some of those numbers? Like, did you do some workshops to identify them and then go, okay, these are the people we want to try and communicate to, or was there some other process? That's a good question. So, our primary audience were journalists and policymakers as conduits towards the larger public. But the question of like, which audience is this for, for us, always felt like the R number ended up being for everyone. And it was translated by people who have a role in communicating into things that then worked for people. So uh, Data for Change, the organization that we worked with, ended up doing work in the Middle East where they were using the events that were happening in the Islamic calendar, the certain feasts, to explain what the R number was. If it was in a period where people needed to go to the mosque, then they produced uh, animated GIFs that would show how you could contract COVID and what that meant for the R number if you went there. If the feasts were local, uh, if, if the family had to come together in home, then they used that as a way to explain it. So um, journalists and policymakers are primary audience, but with the fact in mind that we think that these metrics are for everyone. Brilliant. Well, I've, I've got lots more questions, but unfortunately, we're out of time. So, Chris, thank you very much indeed. Uh, and we now go to our final presentation of the evening, which is Matt and Simran.
whenever you're ready. Uh, okay, it, so it, it'll catch up with you. Good, good, good. All right. Okay, so um, thanks, Gavin. And I thought we would start with what is the definition of a sandbox? So if you were to Google sandbox right now, you'd get this definition. You'd see there's a North American shallow box or hollow um, in the ground, partly filled with sand for children to play in, a sand pit. I'm sure we're all aware of what one of, they, uh, one of them are. And then there's a computing. So that's a testing environment in which uh, we might test a computer system. What we're doing with the FCA's digital sandbox is we're trying to combine the two. So what we want to do is we want to think about how can we experiment with some data and, and get some of, those, um, uh, some of those experimentation from the first definition and combine that with the second definition, doing that, doing that with computing to develop some proof of concepts that add some public value. Now, we have covered lots of themes since we've been doing the digital sandbox work. We've covered stuff from scams and fraud to SME financing, uh, enhanced consumer choice when it comes to sustainable offerings, but we've kind of been growing that out as we go along. And then there's like core, there's these five core features that we have to the digital sandbox. So we have um, access to higher quality data sets. So this could be synth synthetic or uh, anonymized data sets. We've got this integrated development environment. So that's an environment where we'd allow participants to develop and test, and that's usually through a Jupyter Notebook. Uh, it's also a collaborative platform. So what we want to try and do is bring together a community and get them to share their learnings and help foster that ecosystem uh, between teams, observers, and, and mentors. It's also an observation deck. So what's being developed in the platform, we invite people to come in, like such as regulators, it could be incumbents, and just observe some of what's happening so they can see what's happening, say, in flight testing uh, and what they're building. And then finally, it's an API marketplace. So we look to onboard fintechs, uh, regtechs, other vendors, and think about how they can put some of their solutions out there for this wider community to, um, to help pull together and develop some solutions. Most importantly, though, it's the, the, the digital sandbox sits outside of the FCA tech estate. For good reason, we don't want people coming into the FCA tech estate. Uh, it's highly secure, it's highly sensitive, and we don't want any, any external access. So what we're aiming to do is think about how we can bridge that gap between our innovators and our regulators and policy um, making bodies to give them access to what some of the assets that we might have in that tech estate, but doing it in a safe way. So we'll um, ensure that we put data sets on there that are, are privacy compliant data, uh, but it's easier for those uh, other bodies such as innovative firms and regulators to onboard and, and get to play with them. So that's the whole concept of a digital sandbox, is that onboarding process is a lot easier. Cool. So what was our journey like? How did it all start? So we were playing around with the idea of a digital sandbox in late 2019, early 2020. Um, and then something called COVID-19 hit. And we thought it would be tone deaf of us to not focus on something like that, given that it warranted loads of initiatives. And so we decided to trial our first ever digital sandbox pilot on the theme of COVID-19. Specifically, it focused on three problem statements. So access to small and medium uh, enterprises financing, uh, vulnerabilities due to COVID-19 for consumers, as well as increased rates of fraud. Um, so these were the three problem statements that we focused on. How do I use this clicker? Okay, cool. We had 28 organizations take part. Um, here's a quick snapshot of three that uh, I'll provide an example of. So just to give you an idea of how this really played out in terms of the infrastructure, we held a data sprint that brought about synthetic data that we hosted on the platform. So it was a combination of companies, house data, population data from ONS, as well as other data sources. 
We had the advisory community providing advice, again, all hosted on the digital sandbox, and then the FCA who provided API tools and funding as well as domain uh, expertise onto the sandbox as well. And so you had these three uh, firms out of the 28 ones that I've pr uh, provided an example of, QPAL, Faculty AI, and Fractal Labs, who in exchange for their product idea accessed the testing environment uh, in the digital sandbox, and using that over the course of eight to 10 weeks, they developed their solution. So that's a financial resilience service, fraud detection service, as well as SME financial access service, all for the benefit of consumers. And what does the future hold? So as I said before, we're looking to develop this community. So we want to develop an ecosystem where we can work on some of those um, real life problems that we're trying to solve as a regulator. We want to enhance the data sets and the features in the digital sandbox. We realize that we're, we don't have it perfect. It's not going to be, ever be perfect, to be honest. So whatever data sets we've got in there, we want to enhance some of those features. The features that we have in Digital Sandbox, we want to get that feedback and think about future features that we might onboard to the platform. One of the things that we're most excited about at the moment is this cross-border testing idea. Um, today, we launched a, a global tech sprint that's tackling greenwashing, so it's 15 regulators across the world, uh, and they're working in the Digital Sandbox environment to actually develop some solutions to help tackle greenwashing. So enabling um, that community to come together and convene in one spot is really important for us, uh, and that's something we want to continue to build on. And we have this permanent operating model. So we're looking in the summer to opening up those assets to a wider community. So at the moment, it's kind of very cohort or tech sprint based. But what we want to do is we want to think about, well, how do we, if we turn this on for everybody all the time, how do we hit that long tail of innovation? So where do we see the spark of innovation that we might not necessarily have seen uh, by closing off the digital sandbox to everybody? And when we talk about data for experimentation, I mean, there's different types of data sets that we have on the platform, but primarily if you're looking at synthetic data, synthetic data is data which is um, completely artificially generated, uh, doesn't have any reference to real individuals or organisations, but it's, uh, it's designed to keep it completely uh, privacy compliant. You've got pseudonymization and anonymization, and these are techniques that either um, obfuscate or they uh, replace, remove, or transform the identifiable information that you might have in, in a data set. Uh, the difference between pseudonymization and anonymization is generally pseudonymization, you might have a key where you can unlock that data set and actually go back and identify those individuals. And these are the sorts of things that we have on the platform at the moment. So, you can see here, we're growing that community. We've got 2,000 um, digital sandbox platform registrations, and that's growing over time. We have 219 public synthetic data sets onboarded onto the platform, also growing over time. And we've got over 1,000 APIs uh, onboarded to the platform, and also growing over time. And that will as the community grows as well. And these are just some of the assets in terms of uh, data that we have on the platform at the moment. Uh, this isn't all of them, but you can see there's a mixture of anonymized data sets. You've got some real-world data. You've got some synthetic data. And the idea is that you're not going to always use these data sets. There are going to be particular problem statements or use cases where you'll use some of them and others where you might not, might not use them at all. But they're there and they're available for, for users on the platform. And then you've got the API marketplace. So these are the sorts of organizations that have started to onboard their APIs. Obviously, the FCA registers there, but we also you know, work with other fintechs and regtechs to help in, um, make sure that their APIs are on the platform as well. Cool. So we said tech sprints a fair amount. I know I'm short on time, so I'm going to sprint through this as well. Um, but tech sprints essentially are, you, you can look at it as data for experimentation in practice. So they're regulatory hackathons that bring together participants from all walks of life 
to come together over the course of two to three days, similar to the design sprints, to solve common problems. And so they collaborate intensively uh, with the focus on design thinking and address themes such as anti-money laundering, sustainability, women's economic empowerment, and so forth. Uh, I, we've done a few in the past, but I wanted to bring your focus onto one that we did last year on authorized push payment fraud. That was a really important theme for us. Um, authorized push payment fraud is when a consumer or business is tricked into sending money to a criminal who's using a stolen identity or a fraudulent, fabricated identity. Um, so there were three problem statements that we focused on, real-time APP fraud prevention, enhanced data sharing, and spotting fraud at the source. Um, and we procured real-world pseudonymized banking data sets for the first time for this. So we were really looking for sophisticated solutions coming out of it. Um, and here's just a quick snapshot of the types of solutions we saw, focus on money mulling and know your beneficiary um, to uh, find an anomalous behavior. There was a focus on network intelligence as well, so using privacy-enhancing technologies to share information across different industries and networks to find signals early on. And then also one that used uh, device biometrics and behavioral analytics, uh, again, to understand if there have been any suspicious behaviors of a consumer in taking on any money to spot any mulling activity. So really, to sum it all up, what are we about? There's a strong focus on test and learn uh, approaches. So it's not so much about getting it right at the outset, but understanding the various possibilities that we can explore. There's a rule of proportionality as well. So we hold it when, there, when we need a critical mass of people to come together in a room and solve problems together. Um, so there's a strong focus on taking a multidisciplinary approach. So not just financial experts, but behavioral experts, you know, scientists, everything, academia. Uh, but we also want to debunk this idea that this regulator sits in this ivory tower looming over industry, telling them what to do, what not to do. Um, so it's all about expanding that regulatory interface. And finally, what it's about is research from theory to practice on the ground research. All right. Open for questions. Thank you very much. I'm going to go online for the first question this time. This is somebody who's clearly on the Slido or bit.ly slash Slido DB43. Um, it's another question from Tom King. Hello again, Tom. What stage of product development or viability does an idea need to be at in order to benefit from the FCA sandbox? So there's a strong focus on the sandbox being at the ideation stage. So if you have a, a general idea as to what you'd like to solve and what technology you would like to use to get through it, um, that is good enough for us. So as long as you're able to use the data that we provide and you have an initial idea that seems to be unique, something that's not been tried out before, our, our doors are open. Yeah, I mean, to add to that, like you do see some, especially for the permanent sandbox, when we start to go live with that, we're not expecting people that could be at that ideation phase as well. They might be further along the journey, but see that there's assets on there that they can use and they might want to onboard and get access to that, those assets and that community. So they might be in the ideation phase for maybe the tech sprints because that's very ideation focused. But if you're starting to develop a little bit further and you're thinking about, well, okay, I've got this really good idea, I've started to develop something, but I need access to a community to sort of push it to that proof of concept, to proof of value kind of stage, that's also something they could use it for. Great, thank you. Uh, let's come into the room. Blimey, we've got... I'll start with you, I'll come to you, then I'll come to you, and then I'll come to you. Uh, cheers, Matt. And, uh, um, you've got the anonymity, pseudonymity piece. We've just had the pet challenge finished. Are, are you looking to work... I, and obviously, that's cross-border. That was Anglo-US for Swift. Are we looking to do a Anglo-US or a Anglo-elsewhere sort of uh, cross-border... Uh, maybe crypto asset um, transfer 
can't afford change. We're on the record, right? <laughs> okay, no. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I'll be really vague. So, um, uh, yeah, MTech and research team have been working on the pet challenge, and you know, obviously, that's something that we we have a focus on, and we've worked with pets previously on our AML tech sprint. We are always looking for opportunities, and there are a few which I can't mention, which might be bubbling out, um, but I can't say too much at the moment. I will, but you'll know, Andrew. You, you'll always know. Uh, if you're interested in pets, incidentally, I think it was the first of our May data bites this year. We had the ICO talking about their approach to pets. Thank you. Is on? Oh, amazing. Thank you. That was amazing. Um, I had a question about these uh, hackathons. Um, seemed really interesting. Saw some good slides. Um, it seemed to be about 40, 50 people taking part in each one. Um, that's the last one, the push payment fraud that you mentioned. So I imagine people going to these events probably are maybe, maybe a little bit younger, maybe more wizened in the ways of like um, these sort of things, I guess. So how do you ensure that you get a representative sample of people coming to these events, maybe the ones who are more likely um, to, to, be, to be a victim of these frauds and scams? Did you want to go? I can go first. So I, I think that's a really good question. Um, so we place a very strong focus on curation of teams ahead of the sprint. So when people apply, um, we take a good few days just to make sure that the teams we have are indicative of the perspectives we want to get quite similar to you in terms of not so much you know, making it unbiased, but bringing all the different biased perspectives in. Um, for the ones that uh, we've been doing recently, there's been a strong consumer focus to it. So we try and really bring in consumer groups uh, and perspectives from you know, those representing vulnerable people. Um, but also in terms of gender diversity. So we try and make sure we have you know, the good, good split of gender in different teams so that no voice dominates another voice. Uh, and then also finally, yeah, we try and also make sure that you don't have extremely senior people and then you know, those who have just started off in their careers in separate teams. So different perspectives, new ideas and fresh perspectives can be brought in in one team itself, so that multidisciplinary concept that I spoke about. Yeah, but we don't ask a question about age. So yeah. um, that, that's something we have to kind of eyeball a little bit from people we know and, and the sorts of communities we want to build, but we do mix them up. Thanks. Uh, back row. Thank you guys for the presentation. Um, regulatory sandboxes have a place in lots of different sectors and industries. What did you sort of learn from other areas and have you had lots of interest in, in certain uh, parts of our sectors? Yeah, so, I mean, to be clear, this isn't a regulatory sandbox. I mean, we, we have our own uh, DFCA. We work quite closely with them, uh, and we do work with them a little bit more now, and we have looked at some of the learnings from what they've been doing in the regulated sandbox. Um, we need to think about how we can just make them work a little bit closer together, and I think that's something that we're looking at in the future uh, and thinking about, well, how do we have this platform where it's almost like not necessarily giving some of that regulatory advice because that is a different governance model. Uh, it, there's a lot more risk associated with that. So we need to think very carefully about what that governance, governance model will look like. But it's definitely something that we're thinking about in terms of what are the next steps? How do we evolve this model so you can start to incorporate some of those other features, but do that in a way which is still safe? And also to your question about digital sandboxes in other countries, we've had Taiwan and Dubai who are launching their own versions of digital sandboxes. So we've been having conversations with them to share best practices and, and ideas. And the cross-border tech sprint 
the global one on greenwashing is a pretty interesting one because we have 15 jurisdictions working with us on that. So we're able to actually give them access to our digital sandbox platform and see how they would like to implicate that in their own jurisdictions. Great. Uh, we had a question there. Thanks. Sandbox seems uh, actually incredibly cool. Um, but with that, it seems like you're, you're turned into a bit of a data intermediary and being able to connect the dots in ways that lots of other organizations can't, especially with these like incredible data sets, so Twitter up there and, and various others. Um, what are the ethical implications of this utilization of power that you're generating through connecting all these dots that aren't really connected in any other way apart from maybe yours? Very good question. I'm glad you think it's very cool. That's the first thing. Uh, the second thing is very difficult to answer, but I'll have a go. Um, so the, obviously, yes, we have great convening power as a regulator. So it is quite easy for us to attract uh, a lot of individuals to the digital sandbox who might be bad actors, as an example, right? So in terms of our permanent digital sandbox model, which is different to our TechSprint cohort model, when we're looking to assess anybody who's getting access to those data sets, we will go through uh, a vetting process. Uh, and the first kind of stage of that is just making sure, you know, are they a bad actor? Do we know them? You know, are they coming from I don't know, a, a Gmail account from some jurisdiction, which, you know, might be a little bit untoward? Um, and then the second part of that is if it's an authorised firm, we need to speak to our, you know, authorisation supervision just to make sure that, you know, we're comfortable onboarding this, uh, this organisation as well. So there's that part of it, but there's also the part of it is the constant sort of monitoring what's going on. So what are they doing? What are they doing in the platform? There's constant surveys. You know, what are you building? We want that feedback as well. So we will have to do some, I guess, manual intervention to, to control that. Final very, very quick question and very quick answer. I'll be very quick. Um, I saw you have a few like APIs. I saw like Companies House, ONS. Um, obviously, those are free ones. Do you have any like paid for APIs? I think like Chat, chat GPT has like, a commercial API. Do you subsidize any APIs for users? No, not at the moment. I mean, there is, there could potentially be a model there, um, but I'm not going to go there yet. I mean, it would be a lot of legal barriers I think we need to go through as a regulator to be offering those sorts of APIs. So we do the best with what we can, um, but that's not to say we'd rule out, out in the future. Brilliant. Well, thank you both very much indeed. Just a few quick parish notices before I release those of you in the room to the reception uh, on the landing. Um, first of all, we will aim to get the video of this event up on the IFG website within 24 hours. You can already watch it back as live on the Slido. I suspect you already know the address to that one. Uh, the IFG's next public event uh, is happening tomorrow at 1pm, uh, and that's how can government deliver its priorities while preparing for future shocks. Includes uh, Meg Hillier from the Public Accounts Committee and Alex Chisholm uh, from Cabinet Office. Uh, obviously, the next data bites will be on Monday, the 10th of July. Uh, there are also lots of IFG events coming up on levelling up, devolution, SPADs, regulation, economic performance, and a special Net Zero conference. If you would like to sponsor a future Data Bytes, you can have one of your speakers up here. You can have your name up in lights. You can even help theme the event. Uh, please do speak to someone from the IFG afterwards. 
And all that remains for me to say are two very big thank yous. First of all, to you, our wonderful audience here in the building and online. Some really brilliant questions tonight, so thank you so much for that. And please join me in a huge round of applause for our fantastic speakers. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you.